All right, we are in the book of the Revelation, getting closer and closer to the glorious end. We're in chapter 19. We're looking at verses 11 through 21 this morning. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 21. The topic, Jesus came the first time riding a donkey, but returns the second time riding a white horse. The title of our message, Back in the Saddle Again. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious uh, picture we have here of Jesus coming to the earth the second time. I pray, Lord, that nothing would get in the way of its splendor and the magnitude of its importance as we simply read the text and make a few comments on it. We thank you for this gathering of believers, unique and, and wonderful, uh, that we could be ministered to by your Holy Spirit and minister to others here first and then out in the world where you will send us. We thank you and praise you. We do it in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Nothing will ever top the Independence Day White House explosion. One movie critic described it as six spectacular seconds of cutting-edge annihilation, the ice-blue laser stabbing through the top of the building like a straw through a plastic soft drink lid, the portico flying apart in every direction, the inferno blooming out and swallowing the escape helicopter hole. It is the most iconic moment in action movie history. We win in the end. Sorry for that spoiler. We probably wouldn't if it was real. Dr. Stephen Hawking pointed out the obvious. The aliens leading the invasion would be so advanced that they would obliterate mankind before we knew what hit us. Nevertheless, two of our presidents held out hope that we could prevail if humanity united together against the common enemy. In 2014, as a guest on Jimmy Kimmel Live, former President Bill Clinton talked about the possible existence of aliens. It may be the one way to unite this increasingly divided world of ours, he said, and by it, he meant an alien invasion from outer space. 30 years earlier, in his address to the United Nations General Assembly in 1987, President Ronald Reagan said, I occasionally think how quickly our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. Clinton and Reagan were right. In the Valley of Megiddo, the world's combined military might will unite to face a common threat. The danger is coming from the sky and descending to Earth. Stephen Hawking was also correct. The invaders win easily. The Lord Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, Prince of the kings of the earth, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the beginning and the end, the Lord God omnipotent will come in the clouds to claim earth. It isn't an invasion. It's a triumphant return, a liberation. And one more thing that ought to thrill you, we are coming with him as liberators. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, you will be astonished at his appearance when you return with Jesus. And number two, you will be awestruck at his power when you return with Jesus. Let's take a look at his appearance and the astonishment that we will have in verses 11 through 14. Jesus promised that his coming for us would precede the seven-year great tribulation. That day cannot overtake us as a thief. He will keep us from the hour of trial, which will come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. 
The first three chapters of the Revelation described our current church age. Chapters four and five brought us to heaven to witness Jesus opening the seven-sealed scroll. Chapters six through 18 chronicled the seven-year great tribulation. There's no mention of the church on earth anywhere in those chapters. Now in chapter 19, heaven opens and we accompany the return of the king. So verse 11, now I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on him was called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. There's a scene in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers where Shadowfax appears for the first time. He's the magnificent Lord of all horses. I crack up at it, but something like that is going to happen at the Lord's return. He has his own personal white steed that he will be riding. Jesus is called faithful and true. I emphasize that word called because obviously these words describe his character, but here they seem to be shout outs as the Lord appears. At his first coming, Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem. The crowds took up a shout, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Faithful and true reminds us that Jesus completed his mission by offering himself the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the, whether it's angels or us or whoever, we are shouting that out. Faithful, true, faithful and true in the same way that they shouted out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's an announcement. This dramatic, uh, excuse me, it is right for him to judge the nations and make war with them. By the end of the great tribulation, these men and women have determined their fate by their decisions to reject God's free offer of salvation. They continue in sin, which uh, if you read the passages about uh, Babylon that preceded this, wicked, horrible, uh, just terrible sin. Uh, and so it is right, uh, and anybody with a half a mind thinks it's about time that folks like this were judged. Now, this dramatic display of judgment comes only at the end of a long time of grace and patience and mercy. We've seen throughout the Revelation there is no rush to judgment. We continually point out God's reaching out to individuals. And that's why we call this series the grace of wrath. His wrath is coming and it comes, but up until the very end, he's still uh, saving individuals. But now it's too late. Verse 12, his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. Flame of fire are his eyes fixed upon the wicked for judgment. I don't want to diminish Jesus in any way by saying this, but I can't help but think of various superheroes who have a gaze that can kill. Superman's laser vision, uh, you know, and, and x-ray. X-rays are kind of old, right? Let's upgrade it. He needs an upgrade. But, uh, you know, there's several superheroes that can, that can just destroy you with their eyes. To be crowned with many crowns indicates victory after victory. And just think of all that Jesus, Jesus has triumphed over, just these four things are, are fantastic. He's triumphed over sin, he's triumphed over death, he's triumphed over the grave, and he's triumphed over the devil. Uh, and um, no one else can do that, no one else could do that. Um, you know, if somebody offers you some other religion or some other religious person, uh, say, well, 
were they able to conquer sin or death or the grave or the devil? Did they rise from the dead? You know, those kinds of things. Only Jesus fits this. Now, we can't help but be curious about the name written that no one knew except himself. It isn't very smart to suggest names when the text plainly says we can't know it. It's weird to think, though, that the omniscient Father and Holy Spirit don't know the name. Of course they do. And so we must conclude that it is an endearing name between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Albert Barnes suggested, and I quote, this cannot mean that no one could read the name. It involved a depth of meaning, a degree of sacredness, and a relation to the Father which he alone could apprehend. You may have a special name, endearing name for your spouse or for your children, uh, and it's offensive if other people use it. They, they have, they're not in that relationship. You're the spouse. They're your children. Uh, and, and so, you know, people, they use the same names sometimes. I mean, there's only so many ways you can be called grandpa, uh, you know, and that kind of a thing. Uh, but you know what I mean. These are endearing names. And so Jesus within the Trinity has a, an enduring an endearing name uh, that uh, belongs to himself. Commentators generally agree Jesus has more than 200 names. One site I discovered has an alphabetical list of 900 names complete with the scripture references. It's a great exercise to discover his names. Uh, if you've been reading through the Revelation, which I recommended at the beginning, because uh, it's just great to do that and, and it also promises you a blessing, uh, but you might... Uh, you know, read it through one more time and just make note of all the descriptions and names of Jesus, not just his names, but his descriptions. Uh, and it's just a fascinating way of getting into the text. Each of them describes some aspect of his nature or character or mission or methods. Thousands and thousands of names could never fully describe the Lord, right? I, I mean, he, he is more than the sum of all of these names. And, um, we will have eternity to figure that out. Verse 13, he was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. This blood isn't his. Look at this forensically and it's blood spatter of enemies. The writing employs a prophetic tense to show that something is so sure to happen that you can portray it as having happened. And so we know from reading this that Jesus is about to destroy uh, his enemies on earth. And so even though he comes on the white horse, he's all dressed in white and he hasn't encountered or engaged them yet, the author can say he's got blood spatter because it's a certainty. It's definitely going to happen. The first direct reference to this writer is that he is the word of God. And so if there was any doubt, now you know that it's Jesus Christ. In the beginning, John said, was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Only Jesus can be called the word. Jesus is God come in human flesh, the unique individual, to reveal the nature of God to us, to communicate the love of God and the grace of God and to live it out before us. Verse 14, and the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Don't be thrown off by the word armies. It's describing us in our return with Jesus at his coming. In the opening verses of chapter 19, 
We were the bride accompanying the bridegroom. We read, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. The metaphor changes to that of the commander in chief returning with his armies. And so it's, there's more than one metaphor, more than one illustration. And so we are his bride, of course, but we are also his armies. You've heard the old joke, I went to a fight and a hockey game broke out. At the second coming of Jesus, we are coming back with him clothed in fine linen wedding garments to our marriage supper, but a fight is going to break out. The first rule of this fight club is that we don't do any fighting. Verse 15, now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It makes for interesting art, but there is no sword coming out of the mouth of Jesus. Taserface said to Rocket Raccoon, it's metaphorical. The spiritual power of his words are what strikes the nation. The verb to rule is to shepherd. The Lord rules the nations as a shepherd king who protects his people and destroys his enemies with his rod. Now the rod of the shepherd has three uses according to the research I did. First, it is used for protection. The shepherd spends hours practicing with this club, learning how to throw it with incredible speed and accuracy. And so it's a weapon of defense for both himself and his sheep. We like the television program Alone. Uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but survival experts go out into the remote wilderness and they have to live off the land with all by themselves with only 10 items that they bring with them. Uh, and it's fascinating. And uh, early on, uh, what many of them do is they, car they find some wood that's appropriate and they carve a club, uh, a throwing club. And that way when they see grouse or rabbits or things that would be good for food, because they have no food, they have to get, do their own hunting and fishing, they'll throw these clubs and hit these uh, animals and kill them, or at least stun them long enough for them to grab them. I was, it's fascinating how accurate they can be. Second, the rod is used to discipline the sheep. If the shepherd saw a sheep wandering away or approaching poisonous weeds or getting too close to danger of one sort or another, the club goes whistling through the air to send the wayward animal scurrying back to the bunch. Not, it wouldn't throw it as hard, and not to harm the animal, but just to get it to wake up. I remember one time we had a a dog that was a shepherd uh, Doberman mix, mean dog, chief we called it, and uh, hated everybody but, you, but the family. Uh, and so, liked Pam. Uh, so that, that was it. I mean, phew, wow, if I had any doubts, that was the end. But uh, anyway, uh, well, I took him to some training, some dog training, and this particular trainer uh, was a contact trainer. And, and so one thing we had was a, like a little uh, it's hard to describe, but it was a chain that you could kind of mush up. And if your dog did something you didn't want him to, you would throw this chain at it and hit it. Uh, and, and then it would get all freaked out. It's kind of an operant conditioning. And he'd pick up the chain without it seeing it. And so it, it would teach the animal that, hey, uh, if, if I do this, chains are going to come out of the sky. You know, I don't know where they are. but And, and so that's the kind of thing here. And then third, the rod is used to examine and count the sheep. In the terminology of the Old Testament, this was referred to as, and I quote Ezekiel 20, I will cause you to pass under the rod. 
and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant. And so a sheep, you ever seen these big woolly sheep, you know, that are like teeter-tottering? Uh, and so this kind of a sheep, you would take your rod and you'd have to use, use it to help part the thick hair to see if there were ticks or parasites or things like that. Uh, and so uh, that, you know, that would mean under the rod. So if, if you like to count sheep when you go to sleep, uh, may, make sure there's a rod involved. You know, maybe that'll help you, you know, and stuff. You see yourself with your little rod. The wine press, terrifying image of judgment. Uh, it's hard for us to see it that way because of I Love Lucy uh, and the famous wine press, uh, grape pressing episode. But Isaiah described it this way. Uh, Isaiah 63, 2, why is your apparel red and your garments like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone and from the peoples no one was with me for I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. Like grapes being crushed in a vat, so will the armies of men be defeated by our Lord. The apostle John introduced these hostile forces earlier in the Revelation the location of this confrontation is the Valley of Megiddo. It's what we call Armageddon or the Battle of Armageddon. Verse 16, and he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. As Jesus sits on his white horse, the part of the cloak covering his thigh is the most conspicuous that is visible to all, and the title is written there upon that cloak. Jesus was not all that recognizable in his first coming. He didn't glow in the dark or have a halo. He didn't go around looking like a mystic, with, uh, like in Jesus of Nazareth, where that Jesus never blinks. That's, uh, <laughs> I didn't believe it, but when last time I went through that watching it, uh, it was a director's thing to make him look more whatever. He never once blinks in any of his scenes. Uh, but Jesus was he's a nondescript average Jew when he was on the earth the first time. There was, he wasn't ugly, but he wasn't excessively beautiful. He was just an average individual. There'll be no doubt at his second coming, he is the Lord God, not because he has a name tag on his thigh. Uh, the title announces that never ever will there be any other king or Lord over mankind. And so it's not an identification. They'll know who it is. Everybody will. The whole world will know. But he's announcing that this is it. I'm the king. I'm taking the kingdom. There will never be another kingdom of men that isn't ruled by me. No one has seen Jesus as he will appear at his second coming. We will see him first, or at least we'll see him before those who dwell on the earth because we're coming with him. Astonished is one of many words to describe our reaction to Jesus at his return. We will be filled with overwhelming surprise and wonder. We will be amazed. I offer something to consider. The Apostle Paul wrote, this is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. And Paul says, we came to Thessalonica, basically, and you believed our testimony and got saved. And when Jesus comes, he'll be glorified in you, his saints, and be admired among those on earth who believe. Albert Barnes, again, one of my favorite guys, he wrote this, 
The redeemed in that day will be the means of promoting his glory. The universe will see his glory manifested in their redemption. He's talking about us, the church. His chief glory as seen in that day will be connected with the fact that he has redeemed his people. He will be glorified by the numbers that shall have been redeemed, by their patience in the trials through which they have passed, by the triumphs with religion that has made on the earth, and by their praises and songs. William MacDonald adds this. He says, when we return with Jesus, amazed onlookers will gasp as they see what he has been able to do with such unpromising human beings. And so obviously we come back in our glorified bodies with our white robes, our wedding garment adorned by works of righteousness that we have done. And people will see what Jesus was offering all along. Real humanity, the transformation of an individual into an eternal being that can fellowship with God. Now, it's all about Jesus. It's not about us. I don't want to take the attention off of Jesus and put it onto the church. Nevertheless, his glorified bride elicits gasping from all creatures when they see us completed in him. They'll see us and they'll know it was all his work. And so that's, we only add to and magnify his glory, but we do. And I think that's astonishing when you stop and think about it. Now, secondly, this morning, you'll be awestruck at his power when you return with Jesus. One of the greatest knockouts in UFC history also happens to be the fastest. Jorge Masvidal KO'd Ben Askren in five seconds. There are too many I want my money back fights in the UFC the MMA and pro boxing. I know over the years, different groups, you know, oh yeah, pay-per-view or wherever you're gonna watch it and you shell out $3 million to watch this fight. Luckily, there's an undercard that's interesting because the fight is usually over in 15 or 20 seconds, it seems. You, know, you wait uh, to watch this fight and uh, this is gonna be the big one. Uh, very few go the distance like the Rocky Balboa Apollo Creed fights. Uh, they're, they're mostly wipeouts. Uh, and, and so the Battle of Armageddon we're talking about, it might take longer to say than it lasts. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God. An angel blocks out the sun on account of his own brilliance is how I read that. He commands scavenger birds to gather in the valley of Megiddo. It communicates to hostiles that their defeat is a foregone conclusion. I mean, if you arrive to a battle and before the battle begins, the en your enemy brings all the scavenger birds from all of the earth and they're just waiting, there's a pretty good idea that he's confident he's gonna win and there's not much fighting that's gonna go on. And in verse 18, it says, you're gonna eat the flesh of kings and captains and mighty men and horses and those who sit on them, the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Again, there's no description of actual fighting. Jesus instantaneously overcomes the united military power of the earth. We will see him do the same to the supernatural powers of the earth. All those gathered against Jesus decided to take the mark of the beast. By this time, by the second coming, they've taken the mark. There, there's some believers, obviously, that have not taken the mark, and they've been severely persecuted, but there are believers that exist to the end of the tribulation because they go into the millennial kingdom, as we'll see next week. 
But all non-believers, there, there's no chance for repentance. They said, the angel warned about the mark. He said, if you take this mark, this is the decision right now, you can't go back from this decision. There's no repentance for you. They were warned there would be no opportunity or ability to repent. And so now they will suffer earthly and eternal consequences. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. The beast is that superman we've commonly called the Antichrist. Previously, we learned that God would draw him and his armies and all the armies of earth to this battle to be destroyed. In any good action movie, there's a showdown between the hero and the villain. They go at it hard for dramatic effect. The villain nearly defeats the hero, but with some fantastic maneuver, the bruised and bloodied hero prevails. Nothing like that's going to happen at Armageddon. Verse 20, the beast was captured and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone. The beast and his previously introduced sidekick, false prophet, will be the first two inhabitants of the lake of fire. Now this lake of fire, it's the final eternal destination for everyone who's ultimately rejected Jesus Christ. We usually refer to it as hell, but that's not really accurate. Let's look at a few terms to describe the afterlife destinations of the dead, especially the wicked dead. Before Jesus Christ's resurrection, the souls of the dead, saved and unsaved, went to Hades. Now, Sheol is a word we encounter in the Bible. That is the Hebrew of Hades. So Hades and Sheol mean the same thing. It's translated grave 31 times, hell 31 times, and pit three times in the King James Version of the Bible. Hades is that place we read about in Luke 16 with two compartments. The rich man goes to one compartment of torment. Uh, Lazarus, uh, the beggar, goes to the other compartment of uh, called Abraham's bosom of comfort and waiting for entrance into heaven. Uh, the, the coming of Jesus and his resurrection changed everything. When he died, we read that he descended into Hades, not as a prisoner, but as a conqueror. When he was resurrected, he led the saved out of Hades to heaven. Since then, the souls and spirits of the saved go directly to heaven when they die. Abraham's bosom is vacant. A believer is absent from their body and immediately present with the Lord in heaven. Unsaved individuals still go to Hades. All non-believers from creation forward wait there for final judgment. Then there is this place, Gehenna. It's translated hell all 12 times in the King James Version. It is used to refer to the permanent place of torment for the soul and the body. It's a place of fire that shall never be quenched. Gehenna is the lake of fire described in Revelation 19 and 20. It is presently uninhabited. The beast and his false prophet are gonna be the first to be cast into it at the end of the great tribulation. No mere human being in a regular human body could exist in the lake of fire. Those confined there for eternity will be first raised in a supernatural body that is not consumed by fire. Since the beast and the false prophet are confined there at the second coming before any resurrection of the lost, we have to conclude they already have some type of supernatural body. Around the middle of the tribulation, you remember the beast was assassinated and he came back to life. He probably will do so in a more than human body. 
We're not told anywhere about how the false prophet might receive a superhuman body. I just mention it because it's a fascinating thing to think about. Jesus said in Matthew 25 that God made the lake of fire for the devil and his fallen angels. We honestly say that God never sends any man to the lake of fire. They go there of their own free will, having rejected Jesus Christ. It wasn't made for human beings, but it is the only place they can go if they don't go to heaven. Verse 21, the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. The rest are those on this battlefield. It's a quick knockout. The sick experience of them having their flesh torn off and devoured is an illustration of the rottenness of our own unredeemed flesh and our need for Jesus. Shock and awe is a military term to describe achieving rapid dominance on the battlefield. The Lord is the master of shock and awe, not just in the end at Armageddon, but throughout the Bible on many fields of battle. Joshua, David, Gideon, and many others were involved in shock and awe campaigns, situations where overwhelming odds were reduced to nothing uh, because God uh, took over the situation. King David was awestruck. In Psalm 65, he praises the Lord's military victories and then says of him, Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. For all that, the most awe-striking thing of all is God's salvation. In my most spiritual moments, I am awestruck that he saved a wretch like me and wretches like you. Psalm 66, 5 says, Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in his doing towards the sons of men. You and I are the works of God. We are his workmanship, we read in the book of Ephesians. And we are works in progress, that's true. But since God has saved you, there's enough about you that a person can come and see Jesus. And so let him shine. 